0: Now, all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis.
1: Welcome to Carolina Newsmakers. I'm Don Curtis, and Brad Krohn is our guest this week. Brad has been on our program a number of times. Before Brad lost his mind and became a political consultant, he was at one time a member of the staff of WPTF and has also been a newspaper publisher. That was before he lost his mind and became a political strategist. <laughs> and... Um, uh, but uh, as such, he has uh, continued to appear on our program and also was a regular columnist or pop, a panelist, actually, for Tom Campbell's former program on public television, NC SPIN. Brad, we always uh, enjoy having you on because you're one of the people who sort of tells it like it is, and and uh, I also always appreciate the fact that, uh, uh, that you pick on your own party as well as the other party, and you uh, seem to sort of pick out the uh, weaknesses and strengths of both. And that, that's uh, something we need these days. What I want to start off with was, of course, a, a little over a year ago, we entered this period of time uh, where we uh, were faced with COVID-19 in a way in a pandemic that we had never experienced before. And uh, so it uh, shut down the economy almost and threatened to do all sorts of things. The truth of the matter is a lot of those things just never did happen. The pandemic and the sad uh, facts of uh, deaths and illnesses did happen. But the economy, especially the economy of North Carolina, uh, endured much better than we thought. Uh, The state has ended up with uh, a a treasury of money that uh, they did not expect to have. And uh, a number of industries and categories, product categories, have done quite well during this period of time. As you look back, are you surprised at uh, what happened? And what was your thought last year at this time of where we were going? Well, uh, Don, it's always a pleasure to come
2: and talk with you and have a conversation. I I think what you do is really important because we need more long form discussions on public policy issues facing our state. So thank you for the opportunity to come and visit with you. Um, I think we made tremendous progress I will give the governor and Secretary Cohen and our public health officials across the state uh, a very good job, a, a, a grade A. Even though they took drastic steps early on, there wasn't enough information for people to really understand what they were coping with. The threat of a virally uh, respiratory uh, Exchanged virus that it had deadly consequences in a sub in an older subset of our population uh, was an extremely scary scenario, and so I think the the measures they took were very appropriate. As they learned more information in April and May, I think they took additional steps regarding the mask mandate, uh, the social distancing component. And uh, I think that the, the governor was very sensitive to the needs of trying to, to curb the spread of the disease of the virus in order to protect the strength of our public health infrastructure, primarily uh, our doctors and our hospital, hospitalists and, and hospitals. Uh, so that they were not overrun. Of course, in uh, early January, late December, we had uh, really a second wave there, driven by Thanksgiving holidays and the the Christmas holidays. But overall, uh, the state has, I think, moved very methodically, very prudent. There were some folks on both sides of the aisle not necessarily happy. The uh, bars and restaurant owners, small business owners, were very concerned about the impact of uh, the restrictions that the governor put in place. The Republican legislature has been very vocal in those concerns. As a matter of fact, they're looking at legislation right now that will require uh, the governor to be more communicating and collaborative with the Council of State in his emergency powers or her emergency powers. So that may be a good thing. Uh, As we come out of this, the uh, inoculation process, rocky road to start out in January and early February. As the health systems got involved, uh, the hospitals, we started seeing more flow and you're continuing to see more flow. They've opened up to all adults now, uh, I think 18 years old. They're working Pfizer and Moderna, are working on vaccinations for uh, children from the age of 12 to 18. I think we'll be seeing that real soon. Uh, We are at the point where 50% of all Americans have received at least one shot. We're continuing on a rate of 3 million vaccinations a day. Um, The the equity-based effort to make sure that our rural counties And our underserved populations, uh, in particular, our Native Americans, our Hispanic and our African Americans, received access to was very successful, I think. I've been working down in the southeastern region of the state for the last two weeks, and I've been really amazed at at seeing the availability of uh, vaccinations in rural southeastern North Carolina in Scotland County in uh, Robeson County, in Columbus County, Bladen County, they had one uh, situation where they were giving out a thousand shots uh, earlier this week at one facility without an appointment. Roll up and you can go get your vaccine. So I believe we're working on, on herd immunity. We will be there, I hope, by uh, mid-June or early July. I know the president keeps saying that he's looking for a freedom date around july 4th where we can really open up our economy again with the federal spending that we're seeing don i think we're going to see just a, a real uh stampede effect as the economy opens up uh from from an economic standpoint um a lot of pent-up demand in every region of the state and in underserved regions
1: so I'm very
2: optimistic.
1: One of the things I'm hearing from a number of our clients is that they're having a great deal of difficulty hiring people that uh, almost everybody's got to help one to sign up. And one of the things that has happened is uh, all the direct payments to individuals, along with their standard unemployment insurance, makes it difficult for the person to, uh, say, anywhere around a $20 an hour job to say, okay, I'm better off working than I am with the subsidies. Uh, on the other hand, the same economists that are complaining about that are also saying that if we hadn't have had it, we might have been in a deeper deeper hole than, than, than uh, we could have uh, overcome.
2: You're absolutely right. And the question is going to be the weaning effect as we pull out of additional public uh, support, in, in particular for unemployment insurance, and then for the small business community with the disaster, emergency disaster loans and the PPP loans, what impact that has, we're going to have to monitor that very closely. But I think that there's enough money out from all the three different stimulus, two under Trump and one now under President Biden. uh, There's a lot of cash flowing and uh, a lot of consumer demand for Uh, various products, whether it's computer-driven, electronics, or actually base goods, such as furniture. I was talking to a company in in High Point earlier this week. They're getting ready for the spring furniture market, and they're having a very hard time with source materials. The supply chain for lumber and for uh, steel frames coming in from Asia have been held up because of the Suez Canal issue. So we still economically, I think your uh, manpower issue and supply side, uh, supply chain issues are going to be critical elements that we're going to have to look at as we move forward. But again, I can't see anything but real optimism all the way through
1: uh, to the end of next year. You know, we also mentioned the fact that uh, some car manufacturers are having trouble getting computer chips, which may make the availability of automobiles, and the, the uh, car sales have been relatively strong, uh, but uh, the selection process may go down some, and that may affect the sale uh, the, uh, of uh, new cars for a while. Uh, that's, I, I think, still something that may be able to be rectified before it becomes serious, but uh, that's another problem. But home improvements and the, the number of people that have remodeled houses and done um, their own self-improvements That's been a boom during this period of time. People are spending all sorts of money on replacement windows and roofs and things of this nature. Construction people tell me their business is just super. Uh, Absolutely. The home improvement sector, Lowe's Home Improvement,
2: uh, you look at their uh, stock performance, it's been through the roof Home Depot as well. So uh, even your smaller Ace uh, hardware stores, just off the chart, One interesting element from a public policy standpoint is housing availability and the fact in in Charlotte, for example, Don, they have an 18-day supply. In the uh, Research Triangle, Wake County, Durham area, it's even lower than that. I think it's a 12 or 14-day supply for housing. Housing affordability is becoming a very critical issue for middle-class families and for working families simply because they can't afford to get into that entry-level house, even when money's at the cheapest rate that it's been in years. I don't think that you or I could ever imagine that we'd have such a sustained period of time when the interest rates that the lenders are getting from the Fed are right at zero or 1%. I mean, it's just unprecedented.
1: Yeah, and, and the, there's one market in North Carolina where they have fewer houses all listed then they have the number of realtors. There are fewer houses listed than the number of realtors. There's not even one per realtor. Right. So, I honestly, don't, the other thing, of course, that happened uh, that we need to talk about that didn't happen was uh, that happens in a, during a depression is the stock market did not go down. The stock market has performed very well. So, people's 401ks and retirement plans. Uh, general have not suffered. Uh, And I think almost everybody last March was scared to death. We're going to see some kind of a big drop in that. Absolutely. There'd
2: be a type of correction. And the Federal Reserve did a good job on quantitative easing, making sure that the equity markets remain strong. And I think you're going to continue to see that. Federal Reserve signaled late last week that they were going to continue to hold the interest rates at or near the level that they're at right now. And I think it's like a 1% borrowing rate to the financial institutions. I was working in, in Lumberton earlier this week, Don, in the housing market down even in, in Lumberton is extremely strong. Only 51 uh, units on the multiple listing service there. So the realtors not only in Charlotte, Raleigh, and Greensboro are busy, but they're busy in Elizabeth City, they're busy in Lumberton, and Siler City, all over
1: the state, rural and metropolitan. Well, Brad, we're going to talk in the next segments. Uh, we're going to talk about the political season. that's already starting, the birth seat. Already people are lining up to run for that. And we're going to also talk uh, a great deal about uh, uh, the continued uh, uh, removal of restrictions that Governor Cooper announced uh, last week or this week, actually, as we record this program. Uh, and uh, then we'll also look at uh, the first uh, 20 or so uh, or 40 60 days of the Biden administration and your views and thoughts on on how that administration has started off. And we'll do that when we return with the next segments of Carolina Newsmakers, so you stay tuned.
0: I'm a 40-year-old man that walked in there to get his high school diploma. It was very hard for me, but Miss Araceli, she gave me direction. At age 47, Marco finished his high school diploma. 50% of getting your high school diploma is walking through those doors. The other 50% is doing the work. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don
1: Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week is a frequent guest on our program, Brad Crone. We always enjoy talking with Brad. And Brad, of course, is a political consultant and people, uh, Brad, are already uh, beginning to line up to run for the 2022 United States Senate race in North Carolina. The seat that Senator Burr will be uh, giving up as he retires from uh, active politics. This seat will be very, very important because the Democrats are looking at it. This is one they feel like they have to control to keep control of the Senate. The Republicans, on the other hand, are looking at it and say, well, wait a minute. This is an opportunity to take the Senate back over. Uh, So it's going to be a hot race and a lot of money is going to be spent. And already there are a lot of candidates. So what I'd like for you to do, if you would, is sort of handicap uh, where this race is going. and you can start with the Democrats and then the Republicans or vice versa. Any way you want to right, go about well, it. So-
2: there are several candidates on the Democratic side that are going to be uh, well worth the time to look at and to pay attention to. First and foremost is the former Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court, who lost a very close election to Paul Newby in November by 401 votes, I believe, in a statewide election that had almost six million ballots cast. So uh, former Chief Justice Beasley would be the leading candidate simply because of her name recognition and her statewide organization from her previous campaign. Probably the best positioned Democrat to get into the race from an organizational standpoint, as well as from a fundraising standpoint. The other major Democrats are Jeff Jackson, state senator from Mecklenburg County, young, former prosecutor, active military, Uh, Jackson is finding himself sort of in a rut, though, simply because so many Democrats are uh, aligning him up, not fairly either, but they're doing it with Cal Cunningham, who saw just an absolute nuclear implosion of his campaign during the last four weeks of the uh, general election last November because of allegations of marital infidelity and and impropriety in his marriage, uh, not only with one, but with two uh, different women. And uh, that was the downfall of Cal Cunningham. And because their pedigrees and their resumes run almost parallel to each other, Jeff being uh, probably 12 years, 13 years younger than Cal, he's having to defend his uh, actual personal uh, record. I saw him on one TV show uh, several weeks ago, right after announcing basically going on the air to say that uh, he was not Cal too and that he had not cheated on his wife. So I don't know what that says about our politics today, but I did find it interesting that he's getting painted with the Cal Cunningham brush. It's not very fair. Uh, Senator Jackson has been an advocate for voting rights. He's been an advocate uh, in particular for early childhood education for preschool, and for strengthening our public school infrastructure. So he has a, a very good public policy pedigree, and he's having to fight himself out of a paper box. And it, it's really not fair, but it is the reality that he faces in, in his primary campaign. There are two other Democrats, Erica Smith, former state senator who ran against Cal Cunningham two years ago or in, in 2020, uh, seeking the Democratic nomination, African American former state senator from Northeastern North Carolina, former chairman of the board of uh, public education for Northampton County, a school teacher, science teacher. She also has a, uh, a ministerial degree uh, and she's an ordained minister from Howard University. So, very well thought of in Northeastern North Carolina probably trying to find the the Stacey Abrams juice within the Democratic Party to excite African-American women voters in the primary, and that will be her strategy going in. And then the long-shot candidate is the mayor of Beaufort. He's a former a retired full colonel from the United States Air Force, fighter pilot, who had been stationed at Seymour Johnson, Rhett uh, Newton, uh, the mayor of Beaufort, I reckon he figures, Don, that he can't run for state office out of Carteret County as a Democrat and go anywhere, so rather than running for a state legislative seat, he decided to go all in on the United States Senate seat. Very articulate, and it's going to be really interesting to watch him develop his campaign um, and what type of messaging. Is there room for a moderate white male Democrat in the party anymore? And that will be the big question mark. You know, if Jim Hunt was running in the Democratic Party today, I'd argue to you he'd have a hard time winning the party nomination. On the Republican side, you've got the front runner has to be former Governor Pat McCrory. Pat stepped down from his top rated radio show at WBT in Charlotte last week and has started his statewide campaign. Clearly, when you look at all the polling data, McCrory's name identification with Republican voters, particularly primary voters, is very, very high. But again, Pat is a moderate to conservative Republican, and is that what the party base wants right now? That's why Mark Walker, the former congressman from Greensboro, running as a Republican, is going to be a very attractive candidate. I hear from sheriff friends all over the state, he is building quite a base of support within the Republican party with conservatives also with the law enforcement community. Charles Helwig is working with them. Helwig is uh, probably one of the best campaign managers and organizers on the conservative side within the Republican Party. A very well respected uh, campaign worker, organizer, consultant, and and manager. So uh, Mark Walker's got some chops going into this campaign. There's another question, will Ted Budd, the Congressman from uh, Winston-Salem area and and Knoxville over in Davie County, will will Ted Budd get into the race for the United States Senate? Um, And that's a big question mark. A lot of people had had been speculating whether the Lieutenant Governor, Mark Robinson, and of course on Tuesday, he announced via Facebook that uh, the first African American Lieutenant Governor in our state would not be seeking the Republican nomination. So that clearly signals to me that that Mark Robinson is going to forego a race for Washington and really focus his attention on looking at a gubernatorial run in 2024. So those are that that previews the election. If I had to handicap it right now, Sherry Beasley is the front runner on the Democratic side. Jeff Jackson not far behind. And on the Republican side, you got Pat McCrory, the front runner, and Mark Walker building a strong political organization with conservative uh, credentials as the next person up. So it's going to be a fascinating primary season. And I'm thinking the primary, I keep hearing, we're looking at a primary date of March 22nd next year.
1: What about the Laura Trump factor?
2: Well, Laura Trump has been mentioned multiple times. I'm hearing uh, from sources close to the uh, former chief of staff for President Trump that, um, and from a pollster down in Atlanta who's very close to a Republican organization, that she has still not ruled it out. She just signed a contract with Fox News. So it is not necessarily a theta accompli that she will be entering the race. Most people think that she will flirt with it, but not
1: actually get into the race. So then uh, that gets to the Trump factor. Who would Trump, uh, and because Trump that's has gonna, some very that's loyal That's going to be
2: the amazing, yeah, that's, that's the big question. Where do the, Trump, the base of the Republican Party, where do they end up? Will they go with Pat or will they go with Mark Walker? And that's going to be the equation we have to watch in, in the uh, in the next few months. And that's why uh, everybody is getting out so early Even right now, I mean, they're out on the campaign trail. Uh, Mark Walker is visiting uh, campaign, making campaign stops all over the state. And Pat's just in the process of getting all the mechanical elements, fundraising and a press shop, campaign manager. Uh, I understand that Paul Shoemaker will be the chief strategist for Pat. And uh, Shoemaker, of course, has led the strategy efforts for Senator Burr. Uh, all the way back to the early 90s when he was elected to the House in 1994, and then also has done the two Tillis campaigns. So um, Paul Shoemaker knows where the bodies are buried within the Republican primary, no doubt.
1: So uh, we've got the, that interesting erase Now, a lot of, of uh, dark money, uh, money from third parties, uh, which is called dark money these days, and also the two political parties are going to be focusing on this race because uh, the prospects for a midterm election usually go against the incumbent party a little bit. And uh, right now it would look like the Democrats could hold on to their majority, but it wouldn't take but one or two changes. And uh, of course, uh, picking up the North Carolina seat would be huge for the Democrats, but it would also be almost a necessity for the Republicans if they're going to Uh, 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 assume control of the Senate again. Absolutely, and
2: all eyes will be on North Carolina simply because of that mathematical equation you described. And uh, the state has gone Democratic. I don't necessarily see that trend line in an off-year election with the Democrats holding the White House. Historically, we have not done that. Uh, The last time that I can remember North Carolina electing a Democrat uh, was 1998 when John Edwards defeated uh, first-term Senator Locke Fairclough from Clinton uh, in such a scenario, and that was so grassroots-oriented, and there was so, so much pushback, all because of uh, the affair with Monica Lewinsky and President Clinton. Um, so I don't know if we will necessarily see that type of scenario develop here in North Carolina, One other thing, Don, I think there'll be a great deal of attention about will be the second congressional district and the new congressional district that will probably go into Cleveland, Gaston, Lincoln, and North Mecklenburg County uh, with the cutout for Speaker Tim Moore to enter uh, North Carolina's newest congressional district. I I fully suspect that uh, Tim Moore will not be seeking re-election to the State House or as speaker, and we'll be looking at a congressional seat. Kathy Manning's seat in the Greensboro area, North Carolina District 6, will be another interesting seat, and that will be probably a hard-fought fight there, too. So the, the uh, there's going to be a lot of territory the Democrats have to protect, and I think the Republican legislature is going to carve out the new seat and make sure that a Republican holds it, and that Republican, if I had to bet on it today, is going to be uh, Speaker Tim Moore.
1: Well, it's going to be interesting as you said we add a 14th district and and as we redistrict uh every district will be somewhat affected uh so
2: so the timing the timing on that's going to be really important because the census bureau is late in getting the block data to the legislature and uh it's going to be probably mid-september before they get that data so i think you'll see the legislature get a budget passed on And then they'll come back into session probably late September and go ahead and get the maps redistricted. So not only will you have uh, delayed primaries uh, for municipal elections, it's going to impact the the primary in March. So I think that's why we're looking at a March date, probably March 22nd is what I keep hearing. But once they get the data, they'll get busy drawing the congressional maps and the
1: legislative maps and then roll those out for public comment. Our guest is Brad Crone. He's the president of Campaign Connections, a political strategist for a living. And as I said, uh, that he did that after he gave up his uh, lucrative job uh, at WPTF, where we probably paid him about $15 an hour. Uh, <laughs> and uh, anyway, we'll be back with Brad and talk more about uh, what's happening in North Carolina and around the world and around the nation.
0: A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry, I'm afraid I don't know that.
2: Hey, follow me.
0: I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis.
1: We ended the last segment of Carolina Newsmakers talking about Brad Crone's salary when he was a reporter for WPTF. <laughs> I said it was $15 an hour. I suspect it was less than that, because- I uh, think it was that less point,
2: than $15 was
1: probably high.
2: But if you equated it back to nineteen eighty-three and eighty-four dollars, it was it was a fair wage, and it was the best darn job I've ever had. I keep teasing you that when I retire, I'm coming back and I'm gonna we'll work for Rick Martinez and uh, go cover spot news like I did when I was working for you. At, at, and uh, you know, I worked practically full time. I worked thirty hours a week, and um, I worked, went to school full time. So it, it was really a great time you know, I got to cover a lot of great stories, covered Governor Jim Hunt. Uh, During the 84 campaign, Don, uh, Tom Campbell and Dave Bolick put me on the campaign trail with Senator Helms, so I was able to travel with him, and I just learned so much about the state and the people, and um, it it was just a great time in my life.
1: Well, you know, a lot of us can say the same thing. We go back to the Jobs that we had in the twenties, and look at them and say, you know, I never had as much fun. I uh, didn't make a lot of money, but I had a lot of fun when I was a disc jockey at WKMT in Kings Mountain, North Carolina, uh, in those uh, in the late fifties and early sixties. There was nothing any more fun than doing that. One of the uh, great. So I guess a lot today. of us. Did that. Yeah, and Go one ahead.
2: great stories I'll never forget. You know, I uh, Dave Bolick sent me down to Smithfield to the opening of the tobacco market and commissioner jim graham was there uh the uh, former lieutenant governor jimmy jimmy green was there and i got to um get a lesson in local radio and i met carl lamb who owned wmpm radio there in smithfield am 1270 and Carl would take a a cassette recorder with a microphone and go down the line as the auctioneer was reading the prices and where they were going. And it'd be run, John, run, or he buys American or Philip Martin. I, I will never forget that and how impressed. And then Carl would go back to the station and during the noon hour would play the auction. And everybody in the county almost stopped to listen to what the tobacco prices were on the on the market that day. And so, you know, when you're 21 years old and you have that opportunity to see that and to learn that and to understand the value of those local people in the local market, it really impacted my life from a, from a, a ability to socialize with people and understand people, but also helped me from a business perspective, it helped me to understand how important it is to have you know, good working relationships and, uh, you know, I, I just, I, I, I was always struck at how nice Mr. Lamb was to me, you know, coming down a young kid with a Morantz tape recorder over his shoulder from WPTF and how gracious he was to welcome me and to take me to lunch and to give me good counsel. So, it, you know, I, I look back on what I did at WPTF and it was truly amazing.
1: Well, Carl Lamb, of course, is in the North Carolina Association of Broadcasters of Hall of Fame because of uh, for how, what a great community broadcaster he was. Still, he still retired, what, about a year and a half ago. Right. We had Carl Lamb Day on WPTF in salute of his service to Johnson County. What a great guy. And uh, Carl could make you feel so good and uh, was just a wonderful person. It still is a wonderful person. He is and, a great uh, man. A great man. Let's talk a little bit about the North Carolina General Assembly and what's happened so far. And uh, I'd like to particularly get your ideas on where Medicaid expansion is going. North Carolina is one of about 12 states in the United States that does not participate in the Medicaid expansion program. Uh, A lot of controversy about that. Where do you think that's going? Because they sweetened the pot a little bit, made it even more attractive. They you really, really have, the, the American
2: the American Recovery Act that was passed uh, just recently by President Biden and and the Democrat Senate and Congress uh, has put I think about four billion dollars on the table over the next three years to incentivize uh, our state legislature to find some type of compromise plan between the governor and. Uh, the conservative element of the Republican Party running the legislature. And, you know, can we pass that up? There has been some discussion that I understand, Don, is that Republicans are willing to take the money over the next 36 to 48 months and then work with the provider community after that on figuring out how the 90-10 split, the 90% federal, 10% split with the state, would work. So basically, it would be um, a callback so that the state's not on the hook in the event that the money dries up after 48 months, that the state's not on the hook for an additional $1.1, $1.3 billion a year for uh, Medicaid coverage. And I can understand that from the Republican perspective you look at the state's ledger, and it is probably the strongest ledger that I have seen in North Carolina since Jim Hunt uh, took office in 1993, when Jim Martin left office uh, in January of 1993. Uh, the state's sitting on about 4.4, 4.5 billion dollars in cash reserves, and uh, they are, as you mentioned earlier in the show, they're they're flush with cash. So how do you get to the point where you're going to have Medicaid expansion? That's the big question that they've got to come to. The Democrats want uh, basically some type of value based care model, and the Republicans are, are more interested perhaps in a model that you're seeing develop down in the Charlotte area, in particular in Union County, utilizing your primary care physicians, uh, private physicians setting up networks to serve uh, those working families, those patients who make too much money to qualify for Medicaid, but they can't afford to do a regular health insurance premium, much less a copay with their employer. So there's some innovative models. Uh, Donnie Lambeth from, from Wake Forest University, the former CEO for the hospital there, serving in the legislature now, he's been very aggressive. Dr. Greg Murphy, before he went to Congress, had been working on a similar plan. So it's gotta be provider focused. I think the Republicans want a free market system. They're not looking for, um, you know, a a system where patients don't have choices and they're in competition. Um, So they're looking for, for innovative programs. I think we will get there I don't know if the Democrats and the governor are going to be very happy with the the final product, but at the end of the day, I think you will get there. It'll be uh, driven by the primary care physician network across the state and uh, the hospital uh, providers. We've already moved to Medicaid capitation, Medicaid managed care. That has been going very, uh, very good. Centene, Blue Cross Blue Shield, probably the two Largest single Medicaid HMO providers. So, in con, you you take this in contrast to what you saw in 2006 and 2010, when the Democrats were managing the state Medicaid program. When I'll never forget, when Pat McCrory entered office in in 2013, he encountered uh, almost a three billion dollar deficit. Almost four billion dollar deficit in our Medicaid program. So Art Pope and and the legislative leadership went to work uh, real quick on balancing out that that uh, deficit, and did a really good job in cleaning it up. And so now Nelson Dollar is another legislative leader who worked diligently to streamline Medicaid and to ensure that they that, that the legislature could handle the growth that came out of the program because of population growth and demand, as well as anticipating costs for the program. And so now you've got all this extra money. I think you're going to see movement. I think it'll be market driven. So that may not necessarily satisfy uh, the liberal Democrats in serving in the General Assembly. I don't even know if Cooper's willing to accept that type of compromise, but I think that's what will be offered to them uh, as a solution for medicaid expansion
1: well it is with almost all things a lot of this medical care is being uh, is already there somebody else is paying for it in a different way so in many cases we're just deciding who pays for some of this very few people uh, that uh, would benefit from the medicaid expansion are doing without some form of health care
2: absolutely and
1: what? Paid by uh, hospitals and, and, and other budgets
2: have, right, uncompensated care with the hospitals, you know, almost 20% of our state population is uninsured. So yeah. when they do access coverage, uh, you and I are paying for it as private insurance holders. Uh, Medicare's paying for it and uh, Medicaid's paying for it. Uh, we, we all end up paying for it, by not, ha- ha- you know, when we have a high population. So the, the president has addressed it. by opening up enrollment in the Affordable Care Act and strengthening the local marketplaces for the Affordable Care Act. So hopefully that'll drive more and more patients and consumers uh, to the uh, Obamacare as a model for care too. And I think if we can get Medicaid expansion, and I know the Republicans really do not like calling it Medicaid expansion, so if they can figure out some, you know, marketing name that they can call it, to bring in more people, uh, as a state we'll be healthier. Our public health infrastructure will be better off, and a- as a whole, I think our quality of life will improve.
1: <clears throat> Change the subject a little bit. There's been a lot of a number of bills introduced concerning 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 trans- uh, transgender matters. Uh, do any of these bills uh, have any legs? Or are they going to pass? I'm sure they will be. If they do, they will probably be vetoed. Senator President, uh, President
2: Pro Tem of the state Senate, Phil Berger, signaled on Wednesday of this week that he really didn't have any appetite to go back down that road. I think both the Democrats and the Republicans remember the self-inflicted wounds that we saw from uh, House Bill 2. The, the hurt that it caused and the uh, emotional hurt and the business economic hurt that we saw from trying to get into uh, the private lives of maybe uh, 40,000, 50,000 of our citizens in the state of North Carolina. <clears throat> Don, I think we need to focus more on loving people and helping people and not worried about uh, whether or not they're transgendered. The transgendered people that I know, I would never suspect that they were of another sex. And uh, they are integrating into the community. They're part of our community. We need to open them and we need to love them as as uh, the Christians, the, whether you're Christian, Jewish, Islamic. Um, we need to love all our fellow human beings and stop this process of trying to identify people based on how they identify uh, and how they're oriented sexually. It's not productive for us, it's not good public policy, and it, it's just a, a, a case of fringe groups trying to rev up um, public angst and anxiety, uh, and it's just not productive for our state. So I don't think we'll see any type of movement Along those lines, uh, we have to move forward. North Carolina has always throughout our history been a progressive state. Whether it's led by Democrats or Republicans, we've been willing to move forward. And I think that's the type of path that we've got to continue to go down. It's not productive for us. And uh, we can get so much more with uh, loving each other rather than trying to have legislation that forces hate against each other.
1: And as you said, uh, the uh, Speaker, uh, the the President Pro Tem, has indicated it's not going anywhere, so uh, I I wanted to bring that up mainly for that reason. We'll be back with another segment, a final segment with Brad Krohn, right after these messages.
0: Hey, Dad, how do airplanes fly? What's in this box? Can I touch this? Where does
2: sand come from? Is this tree good for climbing? What happens if I mix these two things together? How are babies made? What does this
0: thing do? Kids are curious about everything, including guns. Talking to them about gun safety in your home is a good first step, but you can do more. Always keep your guns locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Storing your guns securely is the best way to prevent family fire, including unintentional shootings. For more information on safe gun storage and ways to keep your family safe, visit endfamilyfire.org. That's endfamilyfire.org. What do we keep in the attic?
2: What's this thing called? Can I ride my bike backwards?
0: Like I said, kids are curious. It's up to us to keep them safe. Brought to you by End Family Fire, Brady and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues. And once again, here's Don Curtis.
1: Welcome back to our final segment of Carolina Newsmakers for this week. A reminder that this program in some areas is uh, carried on a half hour version. And if you are in those areas across the state, I think we have about 40 affiliates that carry this program. Uh, If you happen to be listening to one of those stations that carries only the half hour version, uh, you can uh, go online and hear the other two segments because Jason Kong will put them there by going to newsmakers.com Or if you'd like to share the entire broadcast with a friend, you can do that because the entire broadcast will be there as well without the commercials, as a matter of fact. So it takes about 45 minutes to listen to the entire program. Our guest this week is Brad Cron, and uh, we've had Brad on, I don't know how many times you've been on the show. Brad, of course, yeah, as we true. talked about earlier in the program, was a uh, he started his career by being a, afternoon news reporter for WPTF. And uh, I think we paid him uh, maybe, I, I really need to go back, but I suspect it was about $8 an hour. Yeah, time. it was about and 8 you may, have, you may have been overpaid at that point in time. But uh, uh, but anyway, uh, Brad has gone on and uh, has distinguished himself with an outstanding career, both as a political consultant and also as a, uh, a uh, guest panelist, not only this program, but uh, on a number of other programs. Brad, uh, let's, let's uh, sort of recap, if you would, uh, where we stand, uh, the priorities and challenges that the Biden administration has for the next, uh, and you can watch the clock, and I'd like for you to spend about half the time talking about the uh, national situation, the priorities and the challenges that the Biden administration has in the next three to six months. And then, if you would, uh, then turn around and do the same thing for the state of North Carolina and where the General Assembly Maybe be taking the, the state of North Carolina during the next uh, three to six months?
2: Well, I think bringing stability has been the most important component of the job performance of our president. Uh, Biden had the training as vice president for eight years. He'd been in the United States Senate for almost 30 years uh, be- before he became uh, vice president and what we, we aren't governing or making policy or dictates by Twitter anymore. The fact that it's not an up or down uh, news cycle based on the tantrums and the personal dislikes or the, the Twitter fights that the former president would engage in on a regular basis. I, I reckon I'm saying that it's a whole lot less drama uh, with President Biden than what we saw in the last administration. And I think American voters sorta of got fatigued, uh, in particular during the, the height of the coronavirus outbreak of just all the, the hijinks and the the hoopla that you would see uh, coming out of the uh, Trump administration. And the president himself personally, while many people liked his policies, they just had a personal disdain for his personality. The New York. I'm going. You stab me. I'm going to shoot you. So, um, I think calming down. That has been an an important job that the president has done. uh, Laying out the uh, American uh, Reform Act, the the Jobs Act that they passed. Basically, the Recovery Act for the third tranche of. COVID-19 response money you know it's huge 1.9 trillion dollars so over the course of almost a year we've seen nearly 3.8 3.9 trillion dollars injected into the United States economy that's been very important so the next steps that the president's working on will be infrastructure and and he has proposed a huge infrastructure bill And almost 1.8 trillion dollars there, and the Republicans have countered offered. I believe Shelley Moore Capito, the senator from West Virginia, countered offered with a 600 to 800 million. uh, Excuse me, 600 to 800 billion dollar infrastructure plan that uh, is beginning to make its way. So, over the summer, as we as we head into the summer, the key things elements that I'm seeing out of the Biden administration are really continuing to, to get COVID under control, get us to herd immunity, get as many shots into the arms of the American people, address the concerns when it comes to specific communities, whether it's rural, whether it's minority, uh, underserved, low-income communities that may have more uh, hesitancy when it comes to getting the vaccine, confronting that and enlisting and, and community leaders and influentials to help increase the amount of people who are getting uh, the vaccine. Get the infrastructure bill passed, have a pay-go, pay-as-you-go process. So you gotta you got to have a payment. We can't continue to run up the meter uh, when it comes to deficit spending. So they're gonna to have to figure out how they're gonna pay for it. And more than likely that's gonna be a tax increase on corporations uh, rescinding the Trump tax that was passed in 2017. Then um, the, the next real step I see is building more credibility with uh, our European partners, the NATO, our defense partners, and, and having the willingness, Don, to stand up to the Chinese when it comes to the protection of Taiwan and when it comes to American markets and in particular to intellectual property. And the the Chinese announced two weeks ago that they were on par with us economically. And I don't know if that's necessarily true, but I will tell you this, they're very close. And I've been working uh, with an international company and when their uh, top management comes in from Great Britain, it is very interesting for me to listen to them on their perceptions about uh, the United States place in the world today and uh, how much damage uh, we incurred over the last four years uh, from a reputational standpoint with a, a policy of go it alone, America first. And uh, Europe really does see us as a trading partner and they want to work with the United States uh, from a defense and economic structure to be able to to deal with your growing economies in India and in China. So I think those will be the real issues. The the final thing I see from the president is going to be getting us out of Afghanistan and holding some type of posture uh, from a security standpoint at Bagram Air Force Base and making sure that the ghost wars can continue through CIA operations and that you hold the Taliban in check with the threat that if you get out of line, we still have resources here where we can get to. So those will be the elements at the federal level. At the state level, we've got to get a budget passed. The governor submitted a budget, the legislature's working both the appropriations committee and the finance committees at the state legislature are in full speed. We're coming up to the first week of of May next week, and uh, I think you'll see the legislature start rolling out proposals bit by bit in regards to teacher pay, the state employees, uh, infrastructure investment. The governor proposed a three to four billion dollar bond to be used for our community colleges and for a university system, as well as for some road construction. I don't necessarily see that going very far with the legislature. The Senate President Pro Tem Phil Berger feels very strongly that we have a cash position where we can pay as you go with a 600 to 800 million dollar investment over the next five or six years. And one of the arguments he says from a stability standpoint, there aren't enough contractors in the state to manage, you know, $3 billion boom in construction. Uh, the governor's position is if we're going to bar, is now a good time to bar simply because of the interest rates that are out there. And as you know, dating all the way back to 1841, when John Motley Moorhead was a governor, we have never defaulted on any uh, bonded indebtedness in the state of North Carolina, And the only bonded indebtedness we hold right now is the 2016 bond that passed under governor pat McCrory, the connect nc bond which put a lot of money into our university system building fund and into the community college and the national guard so i think the legislature gets out of town with the budget passed hopefully by late june if not right around the july 4th holiday they take a break go on vacation go to their seminars and then come back probably mid to late September and work on redistricting. And uh, the redistricting is going to be a really interesting fight, simply because the legislature has said we're going to follow the same rules that we did in 2019 after the joint commission by the three uh, judge panel of superior court judges uh, ruled with, with the state Supreme Court holding them up. Uh, that overturned the Republican maps that were drawn in 2014. So I think the Republicans have learned their lesson when it comes to drawing the maps. I hope, I think that it'll be a much fairer process, much more open process on the redistricting. Both parties are going to be super engaged when it comes to redistricting, simply because there's so much on the line. And the Republicans clearly, with the Supreme Court Chief Justice now, have an advantage going into the redistricting fight, because if there is legal uh, litigation as a result of redistricting, then the Supreme Court Chief Justice can set the calendar. So you could actually have elections in 2022 without any type of significant legal challenge uh, coming prior to the general election. So that gives a roadmap for the Republicans if they want to, they have the ability to draw a map the legislative level that helps them get back to supermajority stats so that's the one thing that the democrats will clearly be paying attention to and then uh, uh, the other issue uh, when it comes to redistricting dons what happens at the county level with the county commissions in all 100 counties and then also at the municipal level and as you know our municipal elections have been delayed because the larger cities such as charlotte greensboro winston-salem uh raleigh durham those cities that have districted uh councils don't have the election data to move on so they will be getting the data in the cities and the counties will be moving on districts too so the fourth quarter when it comes to voting rights in the state is going to be really really interesting um and the last thing that i'll i'll bring up is the uh, voting rights issues. I know several of your guests, uh, our good friend Bob Phillips has been following that and what impacts will be made there from a legislative standpoint when it comes to early voting, when it comes to voter registration, when it comes to voter identification here in the state of North Carolina. So those will be the real big issues coming up in the third and fourth quarter uh, for the state of North Carolina. So a lot It is just a, a volume of fire hose of public policy initiatives from budgets to education to infrastructure spending to voting rights going on in our state right now.
1: Well, uh, Brad, thank you so much for that uh, insight, uh, both on the national level and the state level. Uh, we always appreciate hearing from you and getting the, uh, your perspective, because it uh, adds to our knowledge of what we can look for. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong, and he'll have another interesting guest for us. Next week on the same group for stations all across North Carolina. And if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast, you can go to CarolinaNewsmakers.com. So until next week, same time, on the same group for stations, I hope that you and yours have a very, very good week.
0: Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to CarolinaNewsmakers.com.